0: Welcome to IOM 3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series.
1: Hello, and welcome to the latest of IOM3 Investigates podcasts. In the Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining series, I'm Fiona Robinson, currently Faculty Support Manager for Computing, Engineering and Science at the University of South Wales and Vice Chair of the IOM3 Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining, also known as WIM3 Committee. This IOM3 WIM3 podcast series focuses on speaking with women in various backgrounds and industries, from engineering and materials to minerals and mining, to chat about their backgrounds and careers and how they got to where they are now, be it by education, industry, or other routes. In this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Jess Wade, who is an Imperial College Research Fellow Jess's research considers new materials for optoelectronic devices with a focus on chiral organic semiconductors. Beyond her research, Jess is active in STEM communication outreach and is committed to challenging biases, acting as an advocate to improve diversity in STEM. Jess has written Wikipedia biographies of women, minority groups and people of colour, scientists to increase diversity of the profiles available. Hello, Jess, and thanks very much for agreeing to participate today. So uh, could, could you just start by telling me a bit about your background in education and how this led you to studying and researching materials? Sure. Thank you for having me, Fiona. Um, so
2: I work at Imperial College London in the Department of Materials. I started off, um, I guess, at school studying, I did for a level, I did chemistry, physics, maths, further maths and art. And um, to be honest, I had no idea that material science even existed. I'm sure you probably hear that a lot um, or (laughs) certainly think about that a lot when you engage with students. Um, But I was obviously interested in, in kind of innovations in technology that we could use to help society and planet earth, you know, things like the materials that underpin solar panels. I just didn't really know how to articulate that. I am, um, I after high school studied art for a year. So I lived in Italy. I did kind of Renaissance art. I um, was massively into this concept of kind of Renaissance polymaths who could just have this huge understanding of material science, but also be fantastic architects and artists and, and creators and poets and thinkers. And um, so I was definitely kind of inspired by that time. I came back, I started studying physics at Imperial. Still not really, um, you know, hell hell bent on on doing a, a career in material science. But towards the end of my um, physics undergrad, I got really excited when I was doing this master's project, which was on new materials for solar. I was doing a lot of characterization of materials that I hadn't ever really thought about before, and I loved that concept, um, which still kind of fascinates and excites me today. That you have a bunch of people working on quite different scientific things. But using this one characterization technique that's so extraordinarily versatile that it takes this material to a huge number of new audiences and new applications and so we were all working on kind of emerging organic electronic materials for different kinds of technologies and i still do you know organic electronics but now thinking a lot more about how i can use molecular shape to control particular quantum phenomena so after phd had <laughs> I think the crisis of confidence lots of PhD researchers have where I was like I don't know if I can make it um, but I was um, just so excited by it and and loved the people that I was working with so much I eventually after my viva which was with two chemists decided I really wanted to, to, to pursue a career as far as I can take it in academia right I, I absolutely love the research that I'm doing Um, Now working on applying these chiral materials to different kinds of technologies and applications, not just displays, but thinking about how we can manipulate the shape and particularly the chirality um, to endow new functionalities and then have a whole bunch of new new technologies that we don't have yet. Um, And kind of, I guess, for listeners, I'm at that career stage of of setting up my own group. I have a couple of co-supervised PhD students A few really fantastic master's students last year and the year before I was able to teach on the undergrad degree in materials at Imperial. So I taught a module on nanomaterials, which is a third year undergrad module, which I absolutely loved. I love teaching so much and I loved really thinking about, you know, you, you get it so much at the IM3. But what kind of skills and excitement do you want to give young people as they go off and become these materials engineers of the future? And um, so I just love that. And and yeah, I, I wouldn't change anything about what I'm doing right now.
1: So it's quite a change because although you did STEM subjects for A-level, you then did the art for a year. Do you think the art has brought anything into your research or wor- other work that you do?
2: I think probably, you know, I love making figures for papers. <laughs> yeah. I love I love trying to visualize complex things. You know, if I'm going to explain it to a peer reviewer, if I'm going to put it into some kind of teaching material, or if I'm going to even, you know, I work as in the materials department between physics and chemistry, mm-hmm. everyone has different jargon and different ways of explaining yeah. things, even if they're often saying the same thing, or chemists really like thinking about molecules and, mm-hmm. and physicists. And material scientists like thinking about structures and where things are in the solid state. Um, and you've got to do a lot of visualization to make that possible. So I think probably the arts helped there in a really you know basic way, but more just on this kind of appreciation that actually um, they're not disparate at all. But the, y- the creativity you need to be a successful scientist, to design experiments, to design a molecule, to design an analytical process, to design a new technology is exactly the same as the creativity that you use in art the outcome is just different and um, so i i think it's taught me um that the way we educate young people is terrible and if we force them into silos particularly if we force them to only choose three a levels you're you're ruling out so many people from what could be a really exciting career
1: yeah i th- i agree because i think to be successful in a stem career you have to have a really creative mind you know in order to think of ideas and innovative things so you can't have just a very know, tunnel vision about STEM. You've got to have a, a some free thinking as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly
2: right. You've got to be that person who is out there looking for that new application or out there looking for that new characterization te- technique or out there looking for that new opportunity that could take you to a different country or a different research group to work with. I think that... Um, That creativity and that forward-lookingness and that ability to be interdisciplinary and collaborate is so key to being a successful material scientist.
1: So is a lot of your work at low TRL levels or is some of it close to commercialization in optoelectronic devices?
2: It's a really interesting question and one that you get asked a lot more in an engineering department than you ever (laughs) would in a physics department. Um, so I, I was trained in a faculty of natural sciences yeah. where I never even heard what the acronym TRL was. And then you go to engineering and they're like, I mean, what even is this? Um, so I think um, the parts that excite me most are the fundamental very low TRL ones because yeah. it's like, this is some magical new property and we really need to work out what's going on. Um, but the ones that, you know, for, for, for my postdoc particularly, I was looking at controlling the chirality, so the kind of curvature and the shape of these molecules, and particularly for LED displays, so OLED displays, Mm -hmm. organic light emission diode displays that are, you know, Apple iPhones and Nintendo Switches. Um, And there we are trying to use chirality to control the polarization of the light that comes out. Now, that research is high TRL level because of a lot of it really important low TRL fundamentals that everyone is still continuing to do. Um, but but in kind of display manufacturing world, they're already using these kind of chirality in the structure of the active yeah. layer. So so I think some aspects of it definitely are. Um, but I suppose there's I find that the physics and the material science and the molecular science about what's going on. So fascinating. Yeah. I don't really I don't really care if someone just has a brighter TV <laughs> display. Right. I, I want to know why.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, I I agree. And I think, you know, I think it's really important to keep getting fundamental understanding of new materials and new concepts and really getting an explanation of what's happening at a molecular level. But there's always that tension between getting in funding from industry who want to commercialise and being able to support fundamental research in the long term.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Although I think there's a recognition recently, you know, because uh, the chiral molecules I work with, I keep saying this word chirality and I haven't defined it, but chiral objects are um, exist as a pair of non-superimposable mm. mirror images. So left and right hand are the perfect yeah. examples. Um, clockwise, anti-clockwise, twisted shells, twisted wisteria barks, DNA, yeah. sugars, amino acids, chiral. The kind of tech people want to use that chirality to do displays right now. But the long term vision is that you can control photon and electron spin with extraordinary precision at room temperature. These could be really exciting for a whole new generation of quantum technologies without the need for cryogenic cooling. And that's going to take a lot of fundamental science. And I think that governmental initiatives around the world at the moment are starting to wake up to that idea that actually, if we want this next industrial revolution, that's the kind of quantum revolution, we're going to have to invest in new materials, because the ones that we have at the moment need ridiculously expensive infrastructure around them to display any quantum phenomena.
1: Away from your research, you're extremely prolific in public engagement and challenging systemic biases in STEM. What initiated that activity?
2: I suppose I just really enjoy my job. And I feel like everyone should get the opportunity to at least have the kind of chance to make up their own mind about what they want to do it. And going from what I thought was just a normal group of (laughs) A-levels, you know, physics and chemistry and art and math, like realizing that actually, A, not everyone has that opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? Like everyone has amazing physics teachers and amazing chemistry teachers. And so I was quite... Uh, conscious that I had this huge privilege and I wanted to take that opportunity to as many people as possible and that actually women are pushed out of these fields people of color are pushed out of these fields not because of any biological reason but just because of society's ridiculous stereotypes and when I arrived in a physics department of you know over 200 undergrads a year and you look around and it's kind of 80% men Majority whites, majority people from private school. I think you're not a very good physicist if you're not also trying to do something to try and change that, right? I think it would be naive to think that we're doing the best physics research and the best material science research possible if we're only selecting from such a small group of the population to be given the opportunity to do it. So I started doing a lot of kind of public engagement yeah. towards the end of my undergrad, towards the you know beginning of my PhD, um, and then. I suppose my kind of passion for trying to improve diversity and, and the kind of academic culture side of it is just that I think we, we've we been doing the same kind of tried and tested formulaic outreach to try and inspire girls for a really, really long time. And none of it's really had any impact. So what are we going to do that's different? And that kind of challenge, that kind of evidence based approach to doing outreach and engagement um, really drives me.
1: You've certainly been writing a lot of Wikipedia articles as well yeah. <laughs> what 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 really what prompted you to do that was it like well, a, so, you know an outrage yeah. at the lack of diversity
2: I think it was I, I guess it was two parts so I, I, I mean I started doing all this outreach kind of in schools right and then mm-hmm. I realized you've got a really limited audience um, of people who've either already made up their mind to do physics and engineering and you know the the type of students who know what material science is and yeah. come, are probably excited by it already um, all the types of schools that will invite people in or can come to a university on the weekend, you're preaching to the converted. Um, and actually, it's much bigger if you can talk to teachers. So I went and I did kind of teachers events and teacher meetups and 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 speaking to parents, particularly to try and change their biases for, for, against these subjects. Um, but then I started thinking this whole narrative um, and it's pushed a lot by engineering societies is like there's only, you know, nine percent women engineers. That's yeah. not enough. And I don't know if you remember, there was a campaign a few years ago that was like, 9% is not enough or something. And it was trying to inspire young women. And as someone who was once a young woman, if I saw a sticker that said 9% is not enough, I'm not going to be like, well, sign me up. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't want to be that like willing, you know, that this little guinea pig. So so I thought we actually need to celebrate the incredible women engineers and engineers of color and and all of these great scientists that we already have. Now, what I guess most people do is then write a popular science book about fantastic women scientists (laughs) or fantastic women engineers. And um, whilst I think they're all fantastic, again, the type of people who buy those books have already decided that they're a fantastic women scientists, right? You're you're again preaching to the converted. And so I wanted to use a platform Well, people go for information anyway um, where, you know, actually 15 billion people go to every month where everyone from every aspect of society uses, irrespective of their political Mm. concepts or ideologies. And, you know, children use it, parents use it, teachers use it, policymakers use it, chefs use it, scientists use it. And I wanted to put this information there. Wikipedia is a phenomenally important resource and, you know, this democratized platform for knowledge sharing. Um, and it, it feels massive. It's been going since the beginning of the internet. Feels like everything is on Wikipedia, right? But actually, it has um, huge content gaps, particularly in the biographies of women, particularly in the biographies of people of color, and particularly in, in issues to do with the global south. And it can go out of date very quickly mm. on emerging areas of science and engineering because most of the legwork to generate Wikipedia content was done in the you know early 2000s. Mm. So I feel like as academics and as publicly funded taxpayer funded academics we do have a responsibility to improve people's access to the information and the knowledge that we keep behind closed doors And, and and so I suppose the Wikipedia project for me and my aspect of it my contribution to it started because um I was just getting bummed out a lot at just hearing all these gloomy statistics all the time and I wanted something tangible that I could actually do. And, and it's kind of taken me to so many to learn about so many phenomenal engineers and scientists. And then, you know, maybe it goes beyond Wikipedia. Maybe I nominate them for an IOM3 or an RENG <laughs> award, or maybe I put them forward for fellow or something. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it's not just Wikipedia for me, but Wikipedia is certainly something that lets me talk to a lot of people because <laughs> everyone's so excited about talking about Wikipedia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah because i think it's really critical to engage people in stem when they're young when they're still in primary school because i, I mean, my experience is that as people get older particularly girls they lose confidence and they almost convince themselves that they can't do some of these stem uh, subjects. I, I i do agree
2: but not if not if it's going to be done badly I think a lot of people, because there's such an urge and a public concept that you need to get excited at primary school, a lot of people think we need to do things at primary school, that primary school teachers don't have the resource or the actual technical knowledge to be able to deliver well. You know, there are a huge number of misconceptions about topics within physics that start in primary school and hang around for a really long time Mm. because of how inadequate our physics education is at secondary school. So I do think Exciting, inspiring. Sure, that's great at primary school. But I don't think you would meet any 11-year-old who's not really excited by rockets or Formula One cars (laughs) or super cool boats or quantum computers. I think the actual part where you start to lose confidence and interest is that kind of... beginning of secondary school mm. where the really, really good physics teachers are saved for the sixth formers because mm. we've got to get three A levels. So let's not give them to the younger school. Um, you're doing all of these three subjects. Sometimes they're not separated into the three subjects and that's difficult. The curriculum's a bit dry and your teachers are invariably not very confident in physics, right? Mm. Because we have this huge shortage of physics teachers. Mm. So I'm happy for children's books to exist and for that to be going on some engineering excitement at primary school but I think we run a real risk if that's where we're putting all of our efforts mm-hmm. because actually it's that critical time when you're working out who you are you know a lot changes as a teenage <laughs> boy yeah. age. Um, and we really need really high quality stereotype free cutting edge I want to sit in a chemistry class and learn what these cool organic molecules could do if they were the active layer of an LED. Like I want to think about it from a much more materials perspective and a society driven perspective, but that takes real confidence in the teacher. I think all of the underrepresentation of women, of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, of people from different religious faiths. I think all of those um, huge, huge gaps that engineering currently has would be, very very different if we invested in really really good physics and maths education at school and because this government has systematically underinvested in that we've seen no change
1: on the demographics of who studies these subjects no and i think it's particularly difficult if you look at schools that are in deprived areas as well because you know quite often those children don't know what's available you know the teachers are doing their, their uh, teachers are don't. doing that the teachers are doing their very best with it with not very good resources. Um, yeah. you know, so and it is probably not very good. change.
2: It, yeah, I completely agree with you. Sorry for speaking over you. I'm yeah. so angry about this. Yeah. Not um also not very good infrastructure. Yeah. So they probably don't have a physics teacher who's a specialist physics mm. teacher. They probably have someone covering for that. You can kind of get through a GCSE now, mm. a double award GCSE mm. without ever having to do physics. You can just do the biology and yeah. chemistry parts. You probably don't have parents who did maths or physics mm-hmm. to a level, or certainly not to university. So obviously you grow up hating it. I think it's surprising so many kids take it if that's the way that we're putting them yeah. through these subjects and they're not near a university and they might not be able to go to a museum. They don't watch science documentaries. We need to do so much more of that and really investing and recognizing the quality of our teachers and saying, you know, this is an extraordinarily important profession for society at the moment it's paid really badly you're massively overworked and you're giving a huge amount of administrative responsibility when that's not what you're supposed to be doing um, and yeah. so so yeah I I would I'd have strong words with people in government if I could <laughs> and I have, you know I have all of these conversations like with people who work in investment banks and all of these things where they're like you know what would be the one thing to change mm. the numbers of women in these subjects and i'm like that you get paid less and that teachers get paid more yeah. you know if we if we leveled that a little bit then you'd have more physicists becoming teachers and um, but you know
1: you don't make yourself very popular saying that <laughs> so you've done an awful lot in your career and your extracurricular activities what's your what's the achievement that you're most proud of so far um very good
2: question i think the thing that I, the one thing that i'm most proud of out of um, my extracurricular activities. But probably also, it just brings me so much happiness, it impacts the way I approach science as well. It's, it's one of the Wikipedia pages I wrote, it was about a mathematician called Gladys West, hmm. who um, is from Virginia, born in 1930, so she's over 90. She studied maths at a historically black college and university, worked as a teacher, and then worked for the US government on the maths that underpins GPS technologies. And when I wrote about her, and when I researched her, there was so little about her online. And this was kind of 2018. And she was, you know, nearly 90. It, a few months after I put her biography up, she was on the top front page of the BBC. She was their top 100 women. Yeah. She was inducted to the US Air Force Hall of Fame. She won a this, um, Prince Philip Medal and Prize from the Royal Academy of Engineering. She's on like every list now of top engineers, of <laughs> When a pioneer wins an award for GPS or when people say, you know, who did this? Gladys West is the one being interviewed. Um, so by far, my most proud thing is making sure that the public had access to her story and and making sure that she gets the recognition. Um, because people, people are phenomenal, people of color, women, they've always been phenomenal. We mm. just haven't done enough to celebrate them.
1: Women like that. She'd already done the work. It was just conce- yeah. It was just concealed from the public eye. There's so many women
2: like that to this day, right? There's, you know, if you go through, uh, when I started editing Wikipedia, I just went through university websites and their physics and engineering department mm. and checked out which women professors didn't have Wikipedia pages, which is invariably all of them. Mm. Um, but then, look at if you focus on UK academia, anything historical is made almost all white and almost all extraordinarily privileged to be a woman engineer or a physicist in 1900s, you had to have a rich husband or father. Um, And in the UK now, we still have that kind of hang up a bit that you still have an overrepresentation of of white professors. You know, I think there's out of 19,000 professors in the UK, only about 65 are black women. Mm -hmm. So we have a hugely white professorship but also people from quite privileged backgrounds so when i wanted to kind of expand a bit i had to go much more international and and move away from physics and engineering and um, so so yeah I, I, it's it's just been really interesting for me to learn all of that oh,
1: what are there any ambitions that you have that you'd like to achieve in your career
2: well i i i love sci- i love scientific research yeah. so i love the research that we're doing at the moment on kind of chiral molecules mm. I'm building a new type of spectrometer, so ambition wise I'd like that to be built <laughs> <laughs> I, opened, unboxed. I ordered a massive magnet electromagnet, and I unboxed part of it yesterday, and I was so terrified it, about it because it's so big and and you know expensive enough for me for it to be scary um um to some people, it wouldn't be very expensive at all I suppose but I think um you know scientifically, there are really big research questions that I really want to work out the answers mm. for kind of career defining research questions but I'd really like to along the way of doing that be um quite involved in what I think needs to happen on transforming transforming engineering education you know we can't keep teaching with curricula that were written in 2010 we really have to be thinking now um the information that we provide these students has to be engaging some kind of critical thinking and creativity because otherwise what more are we doing than just some open source language model like chat gpt and um, mm. we have to have these kind of creative excited enthusiastic curious engineers coming out of our institutions we can't just give them exams in the way that we've always yeah. given them before and um, we have to and i know that you know probably this aligns with what iom3 want to happen from a kind of you know looking at curricula and and things like that but i do i do really i want to be part of that as institutions, we shouldn't be gateholders to knowledge. We should be making things open access and available. But beyond that, we really need to think about what content and what we're providing to the students within them. And um, I, I, I just love it. So yeah, I'd I'd like a job that marries the two. Um, mm. I know that's what academia is. Um, I also know academia is very hard to be able to get a permanent <laughs> job in. Yeah. So so let's see. You know, I I find I find everything very exciting (laughs) Uh, there's there's a huge number of ways to change the world I just want to be someone who leaves it in a better place than I found it
1: yeah well I think I think that's really critical to be sort of energetic and interested because that's what sort of keeps you going you know because sometimes sometimes you have challenges I don't know if you've had any challenges or obstacles you've had to overcome in your career so far Yeah, probably. I mean, yes. Research research never goes to plan and PhDs... Research research doesn't work.
2: You're you're pitching everything for this big scientific question that you want to try and answer, and it's much more complicated to answer than you originally think. Or, you know, making that thin film is much harder to do than the one afternoon you would scheduled to do it. Or maybe this really exciting new technique you thought of bringing to teaching is just not going to work. Or maybe a student that you've hired just doesn't, want to do the project that they you know you you're really invested in them doing is as you kind of move through um, academia and you start to build a group around you you've got to really think about what you're providing to your students right and the types of people that you're supporting Mm -hmm. in your team and you can have your own personal vision of what you want to be seeing to be done in science but ultimately this is their PhD right that's going to define their career so it's our responsibility to give that to them Um, and sometimes they're not exactly the same so I think that I think all of those things are going to be challenges, and probably the more that you say, um, "This isn't right," or "This is broken," or "You know, we shouldn't teach like this," or "We shouldn't do our assessment like this," or "We shouldn't evaluate funding proposals like this," the, the fewer friends you're going to have. <laughs> so certainly, um, they're challenges that I, I guess I'll continue to face. Um, but I wouldn't be myself if I didn't take them on.
1: And is there anything you wish you'd known earlier in your career? that you think would be a good piece of advice to someone starting out? Um, Yeah, I I suppose
2: I would say the kind of value and the benefit of networking, going to conferences, even if they're virtual, um, going to seminars when people come in to speak at your institution, doing things like placements and opportunities. Mm. Historically, there was a perspective or a perception that in academia to be successful, you had to you know start at one university, move to a completely yeah. different country or city, then go somewhere else and then come back and you know all of this. And I think that's completely gone in the kind of globally connected world we live in today. Actually what you can really do to benefit your resume and your career in general is apply for travel grants that give you the opportunity to go somewhere for a few months and learn something really different and then bring back that knowledge or go and you know develop some particular material system where they have some syn- synthetic capability or some know-how that your team don't have and take it back. And I, I would say that networking, that collaboration and that opportunity to go somewhere and learn a new skill, like don't get stuck reading a paper from 1967 mm-hmm. and trying to recreate something that no one in your institution knows how to do. Find the professor who's really good at that thing, write to them and be like, I love your work. Can I come and work with you for like a month and then try and find the money in your institution or elsewhere to make that possible? Um, because I think too often people don't ask for that help. And, you know, whether they're proud or whether it's because of societal stereotypes or whether they feel they don't have that relationship with their supervisor. Um, but I would say just, just go and do it because it's fun. Yeah. And, and also you get to learn something cool and awesome from someone who really knows what they're talking about rather than slaving away and and not getting anywhere
1: thanks very much Uh, are there any other points you'd like to add no just that (laughs) I
2: think the IM3 are doing a great job and I think that we need to um we all need to come together to really reform and rethink physics and material science education and you know I'm very excited by what you're doing and the Institute of Physics are doing and what the RANs are doing to make that
1: happen thank you If you would like to find out more about the IOM3 Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining group, please visit the IOM3 website at www.iom3.org or follow us on LinkedIn by searching IOM3 Women in Materials, Minerals and Mining. Please don't forget to subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google, Podcasts or Spotify.
0: information about us visit iom3.org or to keep up to date with our latest news follow us on social media using iom3 on twitter and at the institute of materials minerals and mining on linkedin if you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved please subscribe to hear more from us through apple google podcasts or spotify